about the bridge between self-reliance and self-sufficiency. and uh, What I mean by it, bridge is, I think a lot of times when people talk about a bridge between two things, whatever you say first, they think it's, we start with self-reliance, the bridge to self-sufficiency. And when I talked about this topic before, on some level, that's the way I talked about it. Uh, when I was talking about the difference between the two, is how self-reliance can lead to self-sufficiency and, and what the difference between the two is. But what I've realized is I've analyzed this a lot deeper, that... Bridges always go two directions. If you think about, let's say, a bridge that goes from New Jersey to New York across uh, the, the Hudson there, um, just as many cars are going out of the city over to New Jersey as are going from Jersey over to the city, the bridges are, in effect, a two-way street. And the function of the bridge is to build the two sides together to make both sides have more interaction and more power from that. That is how I'm going to talk about this subject today. So it won't be a rehash of a show that I did on October 22, 2009. Um, as old as that is, it would probably be okay to redo that show. But we're going to take a brand new look at it today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is Common Sense Prep. What will you find at Common Sense Prep? You'll find all the things that you need for your prepping that are common sense items. The things that uh, are most needed and most rational and most sane. No tinfoil hattery at Common Sense Prep. You'll also find uh, an amazing assortment of books there from Paladin Press. Uh, some of my favorite books on prepping and, and survival and, and the entire theme around self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And remember, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, you get 15% off any of those books you purchase from Common Sense Prep. Uh, next up today is um, Western Botanicals. One of my favorite companies out there, honestly, uh, the, the assortment and variance of herbal preparations and more importantly whole, whole herbs you can get there is second to none. Their site's a little, uh, I don't know, it has a little bit of that 90's look to it. Um, but when you start to dig in and start to realize what can you get at Western Botanicals as far as whole herbs, the answer is anything you could possibly want. A lot of things you really can't find anywhere else. The cool thing is all of their herbs are either organic or wild-crafted, uh, and that's pretty cool as well. So check out Western Botanicals. Now remember, they have a preferred membership, $50 a year uh, with Western Botanicals. It gets you 25% off everything they have. But if you're a member Support Brigade member, you get that Western Botanicals membership 100% for free. So consider joining the MSB for those benefits alone. Um, next, I want to remind you to connect with us. We have a Twitter account. We have a Facebook. Uh, and we have a Facebook fan page as well. We have a YouTube channel. Lots of stuff's been going on the YouTube channel lately. If you are not a uh, member of YouTube, then you can't subscribe to channels. I really recommend you do that. Be you sign up for it become a YouTube member. Uh, get an account there. It's free. It takes a couple seconds. You have a Google account. You just basically link your Google account to it. And subscribe to our channel. That will help us out a lot. And then you'll know immediately when we uh, 
Well, not immediately. You'll know immediately if you're logged on, but you'll also get updates from YouTube about the channel subscriptions you have uh, if you don't happen to be logged on to YouTube and, and notice your subscriptions. But YouTube's a great venue, and we're trying to put all of our new video content out on YouTube, not just reserve it for the members. So check out YouTube. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only, member, only to members. Great discounts like the two I mentioned today. And, folks, well, I'm going to tell you about what's going on with the server. I could use some more members right now helping to financially support the show. Uh, before I get into what's been going on with the server and our technical issues there, um, let me uh, remind you one more time about The Revolution Is You, our new theme song you heard at the beginning of the show, and this picture slideshow video we're doing of people all over America, all over the world for that matter, uh, being self-sufficient, self-reliant, building those sheds, uh, working in that garden, fishing, hunting, uh, teaching those kiddos how to shoot, uh, actively involved in political rallies, whatever it is that makes you part of the revolution that's reclaiming America. I want pictures of you doing that. Important, 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 important here. Please listen. Do not embed your pictures in the email. When you do that, okay, when you do that, I try to save them. It tries to save them as a bitmap. I don't understand why that happens, but there's two ways to attach a picture. One is like stick it in the body of the email, and the other one is attach it as a file. Please attach it as a file. If you can't do that, put it online somewhere, a Flickr account or whatever. Send me the link. I'll go download it. A lot of you have sent me great pictures I cannot use because of that. Last, I wanted to give you a server update. What's going on with our server? As you probably know by now, Friday of last week, they shut us off over at HostGator. At this point, I have made peace with HostGator. I think they've done the best job they could under the circumstances. The problem is much worse than we were led to believe initially, and it's why the lower-level people over there had a hard time supporting me. I now have a higher-up admin, uh, uh, a higher-up uh, administrative manager trying to help me. Uh, they're not really sure what to do. It turns out the Survival Podcast was pulling five terabytes of data a month, on average, off their server and continuing to grow. That's why you'll notice a little bit less audio quality for a while at least, and you'll notice less audio quality all the way back into January shows if you could download the older shows now. I had to go through and remaster them at a very low uh, bit rate. They still are clear. They still are better than when I was in the car, but there is kind of a gravelly, maybe a little bit of tinny background. I apologize for that right now. It is the only thing I can do till I figure out what else to do. Basically, they've offered to help me if I find another host to even move. They're being very, very good. I'm very, very happy with them. But with the bandwidth I'm pulling, now that they're aware of that, and going to their pricing for a dedicated server, I'm looking at well over $3,000 a month in transfer, not hosting, just the transfer fees for the amount of data I would have to transfer. If it, Now, please listen very carefully, because I don't want a million suggestions for all these little web hosts everywhere that you looked up on Google or whatever. I need people that have first-hand knowledge of a hosting company that can handle data transfer in that quantity. With some compression, I won't you know, compress as far as I am right now, with some compression I could probably get by with about a 3 terabyte to 4 terabyte bandwidth for about the next year. I, I'm not looking for cheap. I'm not looking for anybody that says it's unlimited because they're full of crap when they say it's unlimited, folks. I'm looking for affordable and rock-solid support. If anybody knows someone like that, let me know. Please don't throw a million different companies in the comments uh, because it'll be too much for me to look through. I'm looking for first-hand knowledge only of companies that can handle this type of large volume. HostGator said they don't even have another customer pulling 5 terabytes of data. 
They don't have one like that. The guy has never dealt with anybody with that level of requirement before. So that tells you what the show has become. And I went a little bit nuts with the quality of the audio in the last six months. That exasperated the problem, but it is not the total problem itself. I should be pulling three instead of five terabytes. Um, that's still a crap ton. And as the show grows, the problem's only going to get worse. So please, I need your assistance, but only if you have first-hand knowledge. Okay, let, let the technical stuff go. Hopefully, if you're not a technical guy and you don't want to hear about the server, you fast-forwarded. Let's talk about the uh, main concept today, this bridge between self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Before we can talk about the bridge between them, we have to dis, uh, dispel any misconception that they're the same thing. I think that self-reliance and self-sufficiency are often tossed around together uh, as, a, as a, you know, two synonyms. You're a self-reliant guy, you're a self-sufficient guy, those are the same thing. They are not the same thing. Even in the Webster's Dictionary world, they're not the same thing. Even in the Encyclopedia Britannica world, they're not the same thing. To me, they're really not the same thing. So let's start out with what self-reliance is. To me, self-reliance is the ability to deal with failures of systems of support for some duration of time. It's not necessarily anything that you're actively doing now. It's the, it's the prior planning and having a plan and knowing what to do and having supplies and knowing what to do with them that makes a person self-reliant. In other words, if you keep a small bug out bag in your car and uh, something as mundane as a AAA card and you have an evacuation plan and routes, you have all your phone numbers, you have all the good stuff we talk about for basic vehicle modern survivalism going from work to home and back every day and anywhere in between. And somewhere along the way, from something minor to something major goes wrong, you have everything prepared from not just stuff, but the plan of action, and you can take that plan of action. It can be that big a deal, or it could be as minor as you keep flashlights around your home and the power goes out, you have self-reliance for lighting because you pick up the flashlight and you turn it on, and for at least as long as those batteries last, you have lighting. Those are self-reliant concepts. They're specifically finite in their duration, and they are used as a hedge against system failure. That's self-reliance to me. So uh, you could take that in any direction you want to make it more understandable, but I think I've covered it enough for the time being. Self-sufficiency is the ability to not be dependent upon the system's whether or not they're available doesn't matter. In other words, if I go and I put in a badass, full-tilt, uh, huge solar array on my roof, I put a great big windmill on top of my shed, I put another windmill out in the back of my yard, I run all of those to a huge set of battery banks, and I provide myself enough electrical power to give myself 100 complete total freedom from the grid, I am self-sufficient as far as my home energy consumption needs are. Those are not redundancies backing up the failure of the grid. In other words, I didn't go and put a great big bank of batteries, plug the grid into it, okay? This is the other one. This is So self-sufficient way, I don't need the grid. The grid is useless to me. I've cut it off. Now, self-reliance. Maybe what I do is like phone companies do with their, their terminals. I put in a huge bank of batteries. I run all of my electricity in my home sort of off those batteries, or maybe I don't even run them off the batteries, they just sit there charged and there's a, a, a failover switch, either way, but the electrical grid charges the batteries. 
Now, all of a sudden one day, power goes off. No electricity at my home. Okay? Now, the self-reliance of the battery backup system kicks in. For as long as those batteries are uh, charged, for as long as they're life expectancy, as much energy as I've bankrolled, I have self-reliance until it runs out. But it's not self-sufficiency because once it runs out, there's no more power until that system of support comes back. Make sense? Self-reliance is the degree that you can travel forward without the system of support. Self-sufficiency is the ability to exist apart from the system of support. And this brings us to two very critical areas to understand because very few people are 100% self-reliant or 100% self-sufficient. Most people don't even really want to live that way. Because it can be done in the modern world, but you give up a lot of conveniences and comforts to live 100% self-sufficient and not depend on anybody else. In fact, we're going to get to how 100% true self-sufficiency is a myth anyway in just a minute. Let's start out, though, with how we measure them. This is a new concept for me. It's something I came up with this week as I was thinking about uh, all of the things that, that I've had to deal with. I now describe... <clears throat> Self-reliance as your wealth. And, and I know that might sound crazy, but self-reliance to me is your wealth. And it's, it's exactly how far you can go forward with your wealth. And it, wealth, as anybody that's listened to this show should know by now, it's not something I measure only in dollars or even in dollar value. All right. So if you have a river that runs through your backyard, you have perennial access to, no one can ever take it away from you, it's on your property. And there's a large population of native fish in that water. And apart from some type of natural disaster, which we've just seen with the Gulf oil spill, how bad that can be, those fish will be there. Then those fish are part of your wealth as far as I'm concerned. Even though you don't actually possess them, the fact that they're there and you can go get them, they're part of your wealth. So now maybe this, this statement will make more sense. Let's go back to a guy named Buck, Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller was kind of one of these neurotic geniuses. And he came up with a patent one time for a thing called the geodesic dome. And in that patent, he would make, a lot of his patents, he would make these oddball statements that really had nothing to do with the patent. It was just he would put them in there. And then the one on ge the geodesic dome, he said something about wealth. He said wealth is the ability that you have to survive a given number of days forward. Meaning that wealth was measured in days, not dollars. So that if you were out and you were living your life in such a way that if everything that you depend upon financially was cut off, let's not hear about disasters, just financially, you lost your job, your wife lost her job, you have no more money coming in, and this is the way he was mostly thinking of it, how long could you pay all your bills before you ran out of money? And that was true wealth. So it didn't matter that you had a job that was paying you $10,000 a month, which is a great income, especially at the time the guy wrote this patent. It mattered if that income stopped based on everything you'd done in your life, how long could you survive before you would go broke? And that's how you measured wealth in days and months and years, not in dollars. This guy was a smart guy. Well, when I look at that, I think about all of the things we do as preppers. And then I realize something. And I realize something that if you have a resistant second half, uh, can convince her or him that what you're doing is not crazy. And that is that the food in your pantry is your wealth. It's part of your wealth. It's what I've been saying from day one, really. Maybe not quite that specifically. 
So what I mean by that is, if I have a 90-day storage of food in my home that we would eat anyway eventually, it's eating what we store and storing what we eat, and it's all things that everybody in the house likes to eat, nobody's going to gripe or moan or, or piss or, or you know beg about eating, and we get cut off from that source of income, we have at least the food portion of 90 days worth, worth, worth of wealth taken care of. So that, to me, is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than money in the bank. Why? Because I know I have to eat. And I know that food, in general, appreciates in price because of inflation. So the food on the shelf will probably last me longer than the money equivalent of what it costs to buy the food in the bank, if both of them are sitting static at that point. So the wealth is in the pantry. I start to realize that my garden is part of my wealth. If we're in the productive season of my garden, and it will produce a meal a day for us, not three meals a day, but a meal a day for us for the next two months, then we have one-third of the wealth we need for food for 60 days active in the garden and growing and providing us food right now, this second. And I start looking at everything that we do, and I start realizing it's part of our wealth. My backup generator... Right? And a week's worth supply of gas for it. That's seven days of energy wealth. And that's also, of course, self-reliance. Self-reliance is your wealth. Self-sufficiency, when we look at this, is a bit different. Self-sufficiency, instead of measuring it in time, instead of measuring it as wealth, we measure it in percentage or in degrees. Whichever one you're more comfortable with, whichever one fits your psyche better, whichever one you feel better about, that's what you can call it. I like percentages. So my view is if I use 14 kilowatts of power a month from the uh, period for the home, and I have a 4 kilowatt system uh, of alternative energy, then uh, let's do it a round number so it'll be easier for me because my head's really stressed over everything I've been dealing with for the last few days. And, folks, I was up really late last night converting files, um, so I'm sorry if I miss anything today. But let's say I use 10 kilowatts, but I can produce four from alternative energy. I have 40% self-sufficiency, right? I have a 40% self-sufficiency for energy. It's not really wealth. It can be converted by, I guess, a mathematical formula to what it represents in wealth. But the reality is it's only a percentage. Now, maybe that 40% is enough to give me all of the things I really need, and the other 60% is because I like to keep my house nice and cool all the time, even when it's really, really hot outside. I don't need to. I just want it that way. So then we start to overlap self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and we start to see that bridge form between the two of them. So, the self-sufficiency of 40%, you know, of 4 out of 10 degrees, right, that self-sufficiency uh, carries me through my day-to-day -day living. If I lose the 60%, I still have a 40. Now, it represents the self-reliant aspect, and it's but it's not really self-reliance, even though it goes forward, because how long does it go forward? As long as the sun shines. As long as the wind blows, it's basically an infinite supply. That's what makes it self-sufficiency versus self-reliance. Instead of being a battery backup that will provide me power for a week, self-reliance measured forward in time wealth. 
It is a system that will provide me a portion of what I require, independent from anything else, almost infinitely. And not all of it works out quite that well. Self-sufficiency in that garden, it works as long as your crops grow, you keep the pests down, you don't have bad weather. Okay, and we'll talk more about how they bridge it in just a second. But I want to talk to you right now about who and what you're dependent upon. And is it really all bad to be dependent on other people or other things? See, there's a natural inborn innate instinct that we have as Americans. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be self-reliant. We want to be independent people. No man likes to be a slave to another man or another thing. Many people in this country enslave themselves to debt willingly, but because they've misled themselves. But when it comes down to it, most of us are at least somewhat dependent still on a grocery store. Is that bad? Not really. I don't think it is. You might be shocked to hear me say that. It's bad if you do not plan for self-reliance if the system should fail. But it's nice to live in a nation where if on a you know a wild hair you decide that you would like pork chops tonight and you don't have any pork chops in the freezer or your pork chops are in those nice number 10 cans and you want to reserve those for self-reliance, and you don't happen to pick any pork chops up any time recently. You didn't shoot a wild hog any time recently. There is not a one in your little backyard. Uh, as if you have a little farm, you can go slaughter. You need a pork chop, and you need it now, or at least you want it now. That you can get in your car, drive down to Kroger, and look at a great big, well lit case, and pick out the type of pork chops you want. That is not bad. That is a wonderful thing. If we thought it was bad, we would all go live in the third world where they don't have that. So it's a good thing. So, it's not about shunning the systems of support. It's about an acceptance of the fact that they can fail and planning a redundancy so that if they do fail, you have a secondary plan, a wealth to carry yourself forward with, again, not always measured in money, and developing a degree of separation from the dependents. 30%, 40%. And I think a lot of Americans could get to them, themselves to a point where they produce 20% of their own food. And if we did that, the pressure that we would take off the supply chain alone would be huge. And here's the other thing that would happen. Prices of food would go down, even with inflation, because it's supply and demand, right? So if we all produce 20% of our own food, we would collectively spend less on the 80% we still purchased. And the systems being asked to produce it wouldn't have to go to the extremes they do to get it produced. We can actually make everything better. In fact, the price can go down, but yet the price per unit can still be a little higher for the farmer at the other end or the rancher at the other end of the supply chain. And everybody can actually make a little bit more money per unit with slightly less production and less pressure on the entire system. That's kind of a pipe dream right now, but it is what's possible if we really worked hard to make it happen. And I also want you to understand that no matter how self-sufficient you become, you're always going to still be dependent on something. Um, on my last show I talked about this, I talked about how the Amish, you know, look as self-sufficient as they could possibly be. But yet they're dependent on each other. They're depending on their family unit. They depend on the multiple family units that make up a community. 
Most of them have wood shops and make furniture and things like that. They sell that outside of their community, so they're dependent upon the external economy of other people to purchase their goods for the little bit of money they need to get the things they can't produce internally. If they need that money, then there are things outside of their system. So while if you were a Mennonite or an Amish person and the shit hit the fan, it would probably affect you a hell of a lot less than it would affect the average New Yorker or Connecticutite, right, or Floridian, it's still going to have some effect. And if one family picks up and decides we, we're done with this, we don't like this Amish stuff anymore and leaves, it has a big detrimental effect on the community. That's why the Amish take their young people and have them go through a, a period of time where they decide that they really want to commit to the lifestyle or not so that they don't become too dependent on that individual and then have them leave, especially in large numbers. So they give them an out in those early, late teenage years. It's, uh, it's an interesting lifestyle. We can learn a lot from it, but we also learn that they're still dependent on something. If I completely go off the grid with electricity, I, I don't need power anymore, you know what I am still dependent upon? Enough clear days and enough sunshine to give me enough solar so that I get enough energy and for the wind to blow enough to turn my turbine. And we could get into a situation where maybe the wind's blowing, but the turbine's not doing enough, and it's really cloudy, and I don't have but half the power I'm used to. I'm still dependent on the weather. If I go to a place where I live up in the mountains like a hermit, and I homestead a little area, and I put in a big, huge garden plot that can produce way more than I could ever eat, each season I'm still dependent upon the seasons themselves. You know, if we have a year without a summer like we did, uh, in the 1800s, when it snowed in June, especially if I'm in a more northern climate, you know what? That year I might not eat. I'm dependent upon the weather. And what you'll find is even the people that have you know little homesteads, urban homesteads, rural homesteads, no matter what, they still partake in the local economies. Even the most self-sufficient and self-reliant among them will take part in the economies. And the answer is as to why is because it's convenient, because it's nice, because there's really cool stuff out there, because it's it's enjoyable to sit down with family that come into town. Like my, my, my in-laws just came to town, and we took them to Texas Roadhouse and had a great big piece of beautiful prime rib that somebody else prepared, sat in front of me with a nice cold margarita. That's nice. Again, modern survivalism is not about shunning these things, but developing the degree of self-sufficiency and having a self-reliance wealth to carry you forward if they fail. And that's a much more rational and sane way to look at things. Um, I also want to make sure that we talk about maybe deceiving ourselves and why it's really easier to deceive ourselves about self-reliance than sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is pretty cut and dry. You know whether you're energy self-sufficient or not, and if you're not energy self-sufficient, you know you're not. If you are... 40%, you know, your math is easy to do. You can look at your electric bill, and you look at how much energy you produce, and you know what portion of your energy you can still produce. It's, it's really tough to defeat, deceive yourself about being self-sufficient. If you say you're self-sufficient to some degree with your food, because you hunt, you fish, you forage, and you grow food, right? You know how much comes in, and you still know how many trips you take to Kroger or Winn-Dixie or Albertsons or whatever. So, very difficult to self-deceive about self-sufficiency. Self-reliance is easy to deceive yourself about. 
Because that little kit that you have, that you think will sustain you for 90 days, unless you've ever tested yourself with it, you don't know if it really will sustain you for 90 days. That storage house of food that you think is going to last you for 60 days, or 90 days, or 6 months, or whatever it is, unless you've actually calculated your caloric requirements, the caloric requirements of everybody in your household, and done a sum total of how many calories, how much fat, carbohydrate, protein, nutrients, vitamins, unless you've actually figured it out, done the math, you don't know if it's really 6 months or not. You're just guessing. And those types of things, if you think you've got 6 months... That's not as dangerous as thinking you have six days and being wrong about either one. If you think you have six months, most disasters we ever get into, if you turn out that four, you're still going to sail right through it. But six days, if you think you have six days and you need to go six days and you have three, it could become a real problem. Thinking you have 30 days and having 15, that could become a real problem in some of the shorter duration but very intense, acute, large-scale disasters. Self-reliance is easy to mislead yourself about. Self-reliance is the person that did the right thing and went out and got a handgun and a concealed carry permit and got some basic training and believes I have self-reliance if I'm attacked to use my weapon to defend myself. But he can be deceived into believing how effective that defense will be. Maybe he's not as trained as he's supposed to be. Maybe he's not mentally prepared to actually use it. But he lies to himself or herself and says, I am mentally prepared to use it. Maybe he doesn't realize how a close quarters combat situation, how often a handgun can be rendered completely ineffective. That's deceiving yourself about self-reliance. And you can go from there on your own and take into every other aspect of your life. How much of your self-reliance are you deceiving yourself about? Now I want to get into the bridge, though. Let's talk about this bridge. And kind of the other direction with it. How self-sufficiency fuels your self-reliance wealth. Let's look at a couple really good examples. Concrete, easy to understand ones. Your garden. Your garden is a self-sufficiency asset as far as I'm concerned. Every time you go out and pluck a tomato off the vine, maybe a jalapeno, pull up a bulb of garlic, a little bit of cilantro, chop that up and make some pico de gallo and... Uh, sit down and eat and use that pico de gallo as part of your meal, you've experienced some self-sufficiency. Instead of going out and buying it, you've created it for yourself. And it's being used right away. It's being used as needed. Self-sufficiency. Self-reliance, again, is that ability to survive forward. Well, if I make up a little bowl of pico de gallo today, uh, it gets eaten today, maybe tomorrow at the latest, but it doesn't really help me next month. It hasn't created a storehouse of wealth for me. But if I go out, and I chop up those same ingredients, and instead of making pico de gallo, which is eaten fresh, I convert it to salsa, and I can it for long-term storage. Now my self-sufficiency has helped build my store of self-reliance. My recent video I did with the trombone zucchini, where I chopped up all the trombone zucchini, I dehydrated them, I put them in food-grade paint cans with O2 absorbers, and I put them into my storage rotation. My garden, my self-sufficiency in the garden, has now contributed to my long-term food storage for far less money than I could ever buy that from anybody else for. Because the can can be opened up two months, three months, or three years from now. All of the stuff in the can can be taken out of the can, New items from the garden can be stored right back in the same can. It can be used over and over and over again. The can is a redundant resource. It'll all wear out before the can wears out. 
The food has a zero cost once the garden is prepared. The seeds are seeds I saved from last year. So I don't even have to pay for seeds. The garden bed I grew, I put that garden bed that's growing in four years ago. I took the seed, I stuck it in the ground, the plant grew up, the trellis I built two years ago. There's zero outlay now to produce that food other than my physical labor, which I enjoy doing and would do anyway. So you see now, self-sufficiency, building the self-reliance wealth. A business, Survival Podcast is an example, or any other business out there, any other small business, any other online business, big business, anything that you own equity in, that you own the brand of, is a huge store of wealth. Because even if I got sick and I couldn't do the show for three weeks, I'm sure it would hurt the show overall, but there would be some income that would come in. And I have an audience and I have a brand that's built trust, and you would know I must be really sick. Because I put so much effort, you know I'm coming back. And I would, I'd make it through that hard time. Because I've built the equity, I've built the wealth into the brand, I've built the trust with the audience. And any business out there that's built well has done the same thing. If the you know, CEO of a major corporation goes on vacation for six weeks, his business runs whether he's there or not. Now, he needs oversight, he needs to get back there, he needs to maybe check in once in a while, but basically the business runs and provides an income for him and the other shareholders, whether they're actively in it or not. And I think, I'm going to say this again, I've said this before, every single person listening to the sound of my voice, find your passion and build a personal brand around it. Go out and buy a book called Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. And after you buy that book, email him and tweet him and tell him I told you to. So he knows where all these orders are coming from. Because this guy's really a big guy. I'd like to connect with him someday. I think we could do some cool stuff together. But this guy is a brilliant marketer. But the essence of his book, I'll give you for free and then tell you to go buy it and read it anyway. And that is, whatever you are passionate about, that's what you should discuss online. That's what you should do online. Don't emulate other people. Don't look at me and go, well, Jackson's survivalism, and I like survivalism since I listened to Jack, so I'll go out and build my personal brand around survivalism. If it's your passion, if it's what you love, go do it. When you start it, email me. I'll tell other people about you. That's Johnny Max over at sshomestead.com. He set up the Self-Sufficient Homestead podcast, from day one, I was telling people, hey, this guy's a good guy, go check out his show. I don't fear competition. That's not why I'm saying don't just emulate me. I'm saying don't just emulate anybody. I just mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk. He built his personal brand around wine. If you sort of like wine and you see what he's doing, it's really obvious to go, I'll go do a wine blog. Not unless you love it. Whatever you love, build a brand around that. And anybody can do it today. The gatekeepers are dying and they're scared shitless. Self-sufficiency is wealth forward. Brand equity. Even if you don't want a business, build a brand around who you are, what you know, and what you do, and your passion. Because if you do that and you lose a job and you have 20,000 followers on Twitter that are following you for those four reasons... When you twit, my company just downsized and I got laid off, that's your resume. And it'll do way more than a stupid PDF that lists all the stuff you did. That's only for HR now. The resume is dead. You want self-reliance with your employment or your income, build a personal brand. Next, we look at a solar and wind system. 
We talked about this a little bit already, so I'll go through it real quick. It provides me 40% self-sufficiency while the system's available. But if the system fails, I have self-reliance of at least 40% of what I used to use. So that becomes an infinite source of going forward self-reliant wealth. But I don't have full capability that I want. I want the grid to come back. The grid is not evil. I don't hate the grid. Right? The grid is a good thing. It's why most of you are able to hear me. If I were only able to be heard by people who produced 100% of their own energy, I would have like three people listening to the Survival Podcast right now. Maybe a few more. I don't know. But it sure as hell wouldn't be 12, 14,000. I sure as hell wouldn't have a thriving grid. The grid is not evil. But we do need to have a plan for what to do if we lose it for a week, a day, or a year. And all of those things are possible. And a day is more probable than a week. And a week is more probable than a month. And a month is more probable than a year. That's the, you know, the degree of possibility. But they're all possible. Due to uh, in the inverse relationship that I talk about with the more likely the event, the less the number of people it affects for the least amount of time. The less likely the event the greater the number of people it will affect for the longer or larger amount of time. In other words, a very low probability event in the next year is an asteroid smashing into planet Earth, Earth wiping out 50% of the population, sending us into a nuclear winter, winter, and all but wiping out the entire population of the planet over the next couple of years, and maybe a few survivors hang out under rocks, eat lichens and, and fungus, and survive and rebuild. Huge impact, low probability, right? You lose your job tomorrow. Very high probability, comparatively speaking. I don't care how secure you think you are. Number of people impacted, you, your direct family. That's all. And the, your, the people that you're a customer to, you impact, but less unless you're their only customer. So you understand that. So we, we need to always look at how what we're doing to be self-sufficient can be bankrolled for self-reliance, so that we have wealth to survive when you know, because we're only ever going to be so self-sufficient. The next one would be hunting and fishing. When I go out and uh, we have this great long squirrel season here in Texas, and I got this place up near Denton where I can go squirrel hunting, and I go up there and I take my 22 and I walk around and I shoot eight squirrels uh, or six squirrels, I think is what the limit here is. But I usually never get even close. Uh, but let's say I shoot. Three squirrels today, and I go back tomorrow, and I shoot another three squirrels. I come home, put those six squirrels in a nice pot of Brunswick Hunter stew, and I make squirrel stew. That's a self-sufficient act. Nobody fed me. I went up there and shot them. I got plenty of ammunition, especially 22s. I'm not going to run out ever on 22 ammo. You know, hey. But that's not any self-reliance because there's no forward storage of wealth. If I can't go to Kroger tomorrow, I already ate the squirrel today. But if I get in my boat, I motor out on Joe Pool Lake, and I catch a limit of sand bass, 25 sand bass, and then I go under the bridge and I fish for catfish, and I come home with 25 sand bass and 10 channel cats, and I do that two or three times a week all through the summer. And while we eat some, a lot of them are being smoked. A lot's being deep freeze. You even do some pickling with fish. Uh, you can even jerk fish, believe it or not. And we store up all that fish that we don't eat, and then it comes to the part of the year where I really can't fish, the fishing's not as good, and we can't go to the store 
because of a lack of income, because the truckers go on strike, because there's rioting, because there's a pandemic. It doesn't even matter what it is. We can't go to the store. That fish is now part of our self-reliance wealth stored forward. So the the self-sufficient act, when used properly and stored like a bank account, feeds the forward stored self-reliance wealth. Um, The next thing, I mean, a a pay-for-house. You have you pay for your house, and you don't owe any money on it anymore, other than the taxes you pay on it. As long as you can cover the tax bill, and you have to actually not pay the tax bill for quite a while before they can take it away from you, you create a certain amount of forward stored wealth for shelter. Where if you have a mortgage, and you don't have the self-sufficiency today of having the home is paid for, tomorrow if the income gets shut off, you don't have the forward stored self-reliance of the shelter, and you may find yourself having to walk away from a mortgage and going to a less desirable shelter. And unfortunately for some people, that means a cardboard box on the street. So that's how these two interact. So it's not just about being self-reliant so that you can become self-sufficient like the last time I talked about this topic, but it's about using self-sufficiency to build your store of self-reliance. And then the two kind of merge into this gray area where people are right where they are kind of the same thing. Because the self-reliance is how long you can be self-sufficient. So what I said is most people can never be 100% self-sufficient. But you can be self-sufficient for a given period of time. That self-reliant wealth is all about self-sufficiency. So if you have enough wealth built up that if you pulled the electricity out, you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't do anything, that three months you could be 100% self-sufficient during that three-month period, that's all about self-sufficiency. When it runs out, you're out of self-reliance. Now you're only self-sufficient at certain areas again, and you've got to go out and find new areas of support or new resources to fill in the gaps. The beauty is, if you bankroll enough of that self-reliant wealth, and that's in money, that's in food, that's in lifestyle, that's in planning, that's in a garden, that's in learning how to preserve your own food through canning, dehydration and things like that. Because you can store far more for far less money that way than you ever will just paying somebody else to do it for you. And then you gain the skill. So during the crisis, if the garden's still in high production, right? let's say the crisis starts in June, and your garden's throwing food out like crazy, even more than you're eating during the crisis, you can still keep the preservation going. Because now it's too late to phone up the folks over at Safe Castle and order that case of uh, Mountain House, because it's gone. The crisis is hit. But the skill is part of that self-reliant wealth going forward. And it's bankrolled. Why are these concepts so important to think about? One is so we don't deceive ourselves. That we've already talked about. But another one is so that we will maximize every action we take. See, I think the big problem is people tend to be one-dimensional. I grow a garden, it produces food, I eat the food, that's nice. If we ever can't buy food, at least there's some food in the garden. Well, we need to be connecting the dots across that bridge. If I plant more food than I need, I can store up the the, the reserves. And with gardens, that generally happens because even small gardens, uh, over time, as you get better at what you're doing, become overly productive. You know, if you're growing beans, a few bean vines will produce way more than you can eat in a day. Once they start really getting into that ticking, moving, banging, you know. But we need to think about it in all things. We need to think about why do I, again, the personal branding, the business thing. You've you, you got to have that today. 
The resume is dead. When I was working still with, with my partner over in the recruiting company, we were kind of come out with a report that actually never got done, but it was called the death of the resume. And the vision that I had was the Grim Reaper, right? The Grim Reaper with his, with his scythe, right? And the hood, you can barely see just a little bit of the skull inside the face. And in his hand, you know, normally he has a list of people he's going to reap, and it's facing him so you can't read it. But in this case, it would be turned around the other way so you could read it. And it would look like an old ancient parchment. But all it would say on it is resume. And the scythe would be just about ready to cut through the resume. That's the world you live in today. The resume is dying. It's being reaped by the reaper now. We live in a world where the HR manager or the hiring manager or the entrepreneur with the new startup can go out and connect with 10,000 people and find people that not only are smart, and if he's an investment company, not only can he find the investor that's smart and has a proven track record, but that he has a common set of values and ideals with. Now, if I'm starting up a new investment firm and you're a great hedge fund manager and I'm looking for a hedge fund manager and there's another great hedge fund manager, okay, both of you are good. And even if you have these same ideals, I don't know you and I don't really know him, but I've conversed with you across your blog, across social media, whatever. If the guy you're competing with for the job is a hunter and a fisherman and a prepper, and it's me, and I know that about him, and I, I don't know that about you, what chance do you have with me? And you say, well, what if the guy's not into hunting and fishing and prepping? Somebody is. What if I'm not into hunting and fishing and prepping? I don't care. What are you into? What's your passion? What are your values? When you connect people, when you connect with people on values and the, the things that are, you have in common and the things that you both believe in, you form so much brand equity in your name. What that person starts to think, especially the entrepreneur, is how can I get Danny into my business? Even if your skill doesn't directly match that person's business, he's thinking, I, will I ever need someone like this? And if you can damn well bet the second that somebody he knows needs, he's going to say, you've got to talk to this guy. Well, he's in, he's in Seattle. We're out here in Tennessee. I don't care. This guy's solid. You need to either move him here or figure out how to let him work there. That's the conversation that will happen. But zero of it will happen if you don't build your brand equity, and millions of people are doing it every single day. I know I sound like I'm going away from the self-reliance, self-sufficiency. This is it, folks. In the modern age, as long as you're going to be employed or have an income, as long as the total shit hasn't hit the fan, as long as there is any semblance of society, technology is not going away, and this is how the new world communicates with each other. Build brand equity. I also want you to understand as I conclude today that I think that these two concepts of self-reliance and self-sufficiency are innate to your soul, to your heart, and to who you are. Not as an American, but as a human being, as I often say. There is no human being anywhere on the planet that wishes to be subservient to another man, whose goal is to be dependent on another human being. Many of our people have been led to believe that that's their only lot in life. That's why I think that these, a lot of these social safety net programs that liberals are so proud of are actually the most damaging thing that's ever been done to a human being. When we first came up with things like welfare and food stamps, they were supposed to be a way for a person who worked really hard and then just the system failed underneath them. And they weren't prepared and they couldn't get back out and they tried to help them. To say, look, at least you'll be able to stay in a home, you'll be able to provide your basic needs, 
and you'll be able to eat. And that way they could work to get themselves back to become a productive member of society. And what we have now are people that have been in these cycles for generation upon generation upon generation. I just heard, I can't confirm, but I just heard something that makes my stomach hurt when I think about it, if it's true. I just read, or actually heard on the radio, that one in eight Texans, or maybe it's one in eight Texans that live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, one in eight are on food stamps. One in eight. And they're not poor people. They're people that live apparently in my neighborhood, in neighborhoods a lot nicer than mine. I don't know if it's a true statistic. I haven't even tried to verify it yet. But if it's 1 in 20, it sickens me. Did my country has become a place where 1 in 20 people can't feed themselves? 1 in 50 can't feed themselves? The most basic fundamental of human life, to feed yourself, can't pull it off. Need the government. They only need the government because it's there. And if you're on food stamps and I'm pissing you off, I'm sorry. If you're on food stamps and you're working like a dog to the point where you won't have them coming any, anymore because you won't need them anymore, I salute you. You are the exact kind of person that that program was supposed to help. And God bless you and I wish you well. And my thoughts and prayers are with you and I hope you become successful. You are the exception. You are one half of one tenth of one percent of the people milking that system because the system has lulled them into a sense where they believe they're either entitled to it or they require it. But even those people don't want to be there. So I'm not saying if you're on food stamps, stop taking them. I'm saying work your ass off and get out of it. Build, build that brand equity. Get your ass a job. Get your ass a good job. I don't care how little education you have. I've never been to college. I've had great jobs. I don't care if you don't have a computer. Take your ass to the library. Use a computer at the library. Do whatever you have to do. But get yourself some level of self-respect and be able to feed yourself. And as soon as you can start feeding yourself every day, start buying a little more food than you need to eat tomorrow so you never freaking have to go back there again. Folks, when I start thinking about self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and what's been taken from my country, do you know what I think about? I think about the situation comedies of the late 70s and early 80s. I think about old shows that were kind of hokey. And I mean, I mean, spanning every aspect of society. Remember a show about what it was like in the ghetto back in the late 70s with a guy named J.J. called Good Times? And you remember a show back in the 70s and early 80s that was about what it was like out uh, in, in, in early American times, out on the prairie, Little House on the Prairie. Those two shows seem so different, but you know what they had in common? They both had a male figurehead of the household that in multiple episodes said, this family won't take charity. We will do whatever it takes to get by. And both had times where they had to. But when they took it because it was necessary, they saw it as a debt that needed to be repaid when they were back on their feet and they made good on it. What does that tell you? That at that period of time in America, that was an American value. That was something that the American people held dear to their hearts. And where have we come to today? A place where it's seen as necessary and it's an entitlement. My own sister is drawing wick. My own sister. And I heard her make a statement that when her one child turned to a certain age, they were going to take her wick away. Now look, I love my sister. But it's not her wick. It's a gift. 
from productive members of society that she's been given for a period of time. But because it's been given to her, it's become something she feels she's entitled to. No one's immune from this. The very act of putting these systems in place creates this dependence. Well, I'm saying enough. I'm saying understand that it's okay to be dependent on things, but under your circumstances and on your control and by choice, I'm telling you to be self-reliant enough that everything that you do depend on is a choice. So that I want my house at 68 degrees today because I'm getting really excited and screaming at the microphone. At least I want it at 68 degrees while I'm doing the show. I'll jack it up to 72 when it's over. No solar system in the world is going to keep my house in Arlington, Texas in June at 68 degrees. So I'll turn the dadgone thing on. I'll crank the thermostat down. But by God, no matter what they do to me, you're going to get this show every day. And if I have to sit here and sweat to do it because I don't have that capability, as long as I've got enough energy to run a laptop, a recorder, and somehow get this information on the Internet, you're going to hear it. And I want you to live your life that way no matter what the hell you're talking about, no matter how similar or different from me you are. I want you to have a vision for yourself that says if something gets in my way, if somebody gets in my way, I will knock them the hell over to get what I want. Not to be rude, not to be mean, not to be malicious, but because what I have to do is more important to me and my family than whatever obstacles in my way. When I was being trained as a young salesperson, I had a mentor one time that was teaching me to get around gatekeepers. And he said, look, Jack, I don't want you to think about the person on the phone negatively. I don't want you to think anything bad about them, but I do want you to get a reality. The person answering that phone, and at the time these numbers were right, is probably a 7 to $8 an hour receptionist. That's what she is. You are a salesperson that can sell orders into a million-dollar range and higher. Your average sale will be a $50,000 sale. You're doing that because you have specialized knowledge about your product set and you're looking for people that need that product set. You're not trying to sell this product to anybody that doesn't need it. In fact, we can't sell this product to somebody that doesn't need it because it's so expensive that no one that doesn't need it will ever buy it. So if you get to a customer and you get to a prospect and it turns out they don't have a need, you're going to end the conversation. You're going to preserve the relationship. You're going to network with that person for a long time to come. And if they're never going to need your product, you're never going to push at it again. You're just going to be their friend. You are a highly skilled individual. If you let that gatekeeper get in your way, you're letting a $7 an hour employee separate you from the money to feed your family, and you're letting a $7 an hour employee separate that manager from buying a highly valued product that he needs to further his business. Your job is to knock that person down, knock them out of the way as gently and nicely as possible, make them feel good about it, but don't let them get in your way. I'm saying that's how you should view obstacles in your life. Whether it's an income obstacle... Whether it's a life event obstacle, no matter what it is, and it all comes down to self-reliance and self-sufficiency. If you have some degree of self-sufficiency, 1% in your life, 1% beyond what you have just because you can breathe and convert oxygen to CO2, that you create and you knowledgeably create for yourself, and you have one or two days of self-reliance, it changes your outlook in life. And every time you add one day and 1%, one day and 1%, you become more confident and what happens is an amazing transformation with people. They become the people they are supposed to be. Most people walk through life 
in a pantomime, in an act. And it's why you're in debt. And it's why you're not prepared. And it's why you're listening to a show like this, the real reason. You're not just listening to this show so that you can store food. Unless you maybe started listening the last day or two, you know better than that. You know that occasionally a show's going to get like this. And you want it. Because you're looking for something more. And you're not looking for Anthony Robbins or one of these motivational speakers that says, Everything is super! I'm good! I'm worth something! And everybody likes me! You're not looking for that. You're looking for reality. You're looking for no bullshit. And you're looking for no excuses. And you're looking for it so you can use it for yourself and so you can transfer it to other people. Because you believe in yourself and you believe in your nation and you believe in your family more than the TV tells you to and the radio tells you to. Because they're worried about sounding nice and I'm worried about you. And that doesn't make me special. That just makes me authentic. Most people actually feel that way. But they're scared shitless to live that way. And what I found is the more self-reliant, self-sufficient I become, the more of myself I become. And the more I like myself and the more joy comes into my life. That's what prepping does for you. When you get to a point where you say, six months, turn it off. I don't care. The whole thing comes out. I hope it doesn't happen. I hate to see anybody else suffer. But if it does, I'll be all right. All of a sudden, you can be an authentic human being. You can stand in your backyard with a shovel in your hand and you can feel good about doing work that you once avoided. How many people lined up and really said, well, I'm going to be a little kid? Man, I want to dig potholes. I want to go out and be a laborer on a construction. I don't want to run a machine. I don't, want to I don't want none of that cool stuff. I just want to shovel. I just want to dig holes. I want to do grunt work for menial wages. Nobody. But you'll feel good about doing it when you're planting some seeds. That's how dynamics change. That's what authenticity does for somebody. And you don't even get the crappy minimum wage pay. All you get is a tomato or a cucumber. But you're overjoyed with it because you're being authentic. And that's what it comes down to. If you want to be self-sufficient, if you want to be self-reliant, if you really want control in your life, you have to work not just toward those concepts, but toward authenticity. So I'm going to challenge you today to try to take one or two additional authentic acts I want you to get to a point sometime, and it'll happen today, it'll happen tomorrow, it'll happen through the rest of the week. Do this for the next week. I want you to get to the point where you feel like, I don't really want to do this. And as long as it's not something that's like intrinsic to making sure you pay the bills, when you get that feeling, instead of doing what you think society wants you to do, do what you really want to do. Have enough faith in yourself. Trust yourself to know that you're a good person. You're not good. That you're not, you're, you're, what you want to do isn't to go out and, and you know beat somebody over the head with a sledgehammer. You may feel that way once in a while out of frustration, but that's not what you want to do. But find what you really want and do it. Ask yourself what you really want from life. Write it down. Think about it. Stop saying to yourself, I'll never be able to afford this, or I'll never be able to have this, and start asking yourself, how can I afford this? What can I do in my life that will give me the ability to have this? Start doing that. Start doing that right now. That is as much about your prepping as anything else. Because a lot of the things that we talk about doing here are actually really hard to do. They take discipline, and they take effort. And only people led in their life by passion do what's difficult and takes effort for themselves. Many people do what's difficult and what takes effort for others. You work for a company. You give your life, your blood, your soul to them. They profit disproportionately. And when they're done with you, they wad you up and they throw you away. 
But you never do what's difficult, what's hard for yourself. You'll only do that when you find your passion. Find your passion, whatever it may be. I'll tell you what, my passion, is it about prepping? Is it about self-reliance? Is it about self-sufficiency? Is it about gardening? Is it about money? Yes, I'm passionate about all those things. But you know what I'm most passionate about? Helping people change their own lives. That's the real motivation behind why I do this show. Helping you change your life. Not into the life I think you should have, but into the life that you truly believe internally that you should have. With as much safeguarding of what you hold dear as you find appropriate. I don't tell you your duration is three months or 90 days or six months or 180 days or a year. You determine that for yourself. Every other survival book I've ever read has made concrete recommendations. Minimum of this, minimum of that. No, that doesn't fit your life. I never tell you what your plan is supposed to be. I'll tell you how I think and how I feel. I'll help you find who you really are. And then you build your You build your self-sufficiency. You build your self-reliance. You build your life with as much of that as you want in it. You do it your way. Follow who you are. Follow your passion. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. I'm getting tough. Nobody up there cares They're living